Welcome to Working Overtime, the ever-helpful last chance kitchen to working's illustrious top chef. I'm your host, Nate Chenen. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. So, Nate, before we pack our knives and go, what are we talking about today? You know, I think I'd like to call this one the art of refraction. That sounds a little highfalutin. And to be clear, I was a terrible physics student. But I did learn that refraction is what we call the change in direction of a wave as it passes from one medium to another. So think of a a ray of light moving through a prism or a sound wave passing through water. Well, today, I'd like to hijack this metaphor for our own purposes and talk about what happens when you shift from the medium that is your area of expertise. Maybe it's drawing or dancing or basket weaving, whatever it may be toward a creative discipline that's just different enough to present you with a learning curve. So Isaac, you are a theater director who also works as a cultural historian and an author and a podcaster. So I'm guessing that you're going to have a few things to say on this matter. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. I do know that, you know, like when I was in graduate school studying creative writing, focusing on nonfiction, one thing I realized was that like what I found most helpful was trying to figure out how to make the devices that I saw in other media than prose work in prose, you know, like, how do you do what Errol Morris does, but in prose, right? How do you do what Joe Sacco, a a brilliant nonfiction journalist who publishes his nonfiction as comics, who we've interviewed on this show, how do you do that in prose? You know, that, that whole idea of going to another sort of field to learn something and then adapt it to the one you're working in is, is very near and dear to my heart. But that's a little different than what we're talking about today, because there's a translation process in what you're invoking, which I love. What I want to discuss is not necessarily drawing inspiration from another medium entirely, but something that's just maybe one click off (laughs) from what you do. Everything's at least one click off from what I do, Nate. That's the problem when you have seven jobs, you know? (laughs) Well, okay, touche. But yeah, this is a difference in degree. Yeah, totally, totally. So I brought a distinguished example or two that we can get to later. But first, in the interest of full transparency, I'll offer my own experience as a test case. Isaac, you know, I have spent the entirety of my professional career writing about music for the page. First, this was in print publications and then extensively online. But a while back, in an episode of Working, we talked about how to find the music in prose. It's kind of like that thing you just mentioned, right? Seeking inspiration from from another medium, but also trying to locate it in what you're producing. One thing that you said stuck with me, which was that you have a regular habit of reading your copy out loud. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something I do occasionally, but more often than not, I'm, you know, I'm somebody who imagines that rhythm and cadence in my head. Yeah, totally. So for our listeners who who may be not familiar with this, I'm a huge evangelist for reading the prose out loud. If it's a really important assignment, I'll do that through multiple drafts. Sometimes I just do it the final time before I send it to the editor. It's really important to me to, to on some physical, somatic way, engage with the rhythms and cadence and sounds of the language. But I also find this other thing happening, which is something I've learned from actors, which is, you know, if a section of the writing isn't working, you're 
you're actually going to have trouble saying it. Mm. Like something happens where your brain knows that it's bad writing or it's writing that doesn't work. And then you, you start tripping over it. And that's something I learned from watching actors during rehearsals while developing new plays. Like if an actor is having a lot of trouble saying a line every time it comes to say the line, the line is actually more likely than not the problem. And yeah. so this is sort of my version of what some writers do where they, you know, change the font to comic sans or something so that, that, right, that right. the lovely font they've chosen isn't covering up the problems. It, it's kind of like that. It's just taking a different part of your brain, throwing it at the work and seeing what you learn. Okay. So the insight that you put your finger on there, we'll get back to that in a moment because it, it has a role to play in one of my examples. So here's where my own story gets refractive, if you will. Back in 2017, after about a dozen years as a contributing pop music critic for the New York Times, I started a new gig in public radio. And most of the job was actually pretty similar, substantively. You know, I was writing stories that were intended to be read. But I also began writing pieces for radio. Everything from five-minute features for NPR's Morning Edition to the occasional hour-long episode of Jazz Night in America, which is a nationally syndicated show. And, you know, this, this wasn't a total shock to me, but one thing I discovered was that I knew exactly how to craft a story for a print medium, but I had to adopt a few new strategies to really connect with a radio audience. That makes total sense. I actually had a similar experience when I started working on Lend Me Your Ears, which was a scripted podcast I did about Shakespeare and politics for Slate. I wrote those scripts in a, you know, maybe literary way, you know, because that's the background I come from. But it just totally didn't work. You know, I would send those first drafts in and I remember Gabe Roth, who was then the, the head of Slate Plus, would just be like, you have to break these clauses up, man. What are you doing? <laughs> so what are some of the tips that you learned? Okay. So one tip that radio veterans will give to a writer like myself is keep it simple. And, you know, I don't mean that so much in terms of the substance, but really as it relates to structure. When you're writing for radio, or really any audio medium, you use shorter sentences. You use fewer of those dependent clauses. You are ruthless about flowery modifiers. And, and more often than not, you get right to the point. So these are what I like to think of as house rules based on a lot of mileage accrued by veteran producers and hosts and people in the business. It's really about what an average listener can be expected to handle as opposed to an average reader, even if those people are one and the same. You have to be direct in a way that you don't have to be in prose, right? The yeah. elegance and the power and the meaning actually come out of that directness and out of structure and flow of ideas instead of how beautiful your language is, you know? Yeah. And I actually think I learned a lot about thinking about structure and thought from that experience, you know, that I then brought back to prose for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it is tricky, right? I think you and I both had to almost struggle to scale back some of the skills that we'd honed as writers. You know, it's like you, you work really, really hard to develop a style in prose and there's a certain amount of like, kill your darlings <laughs> when, when you write a, a script and you realize, oh, this just doesn't work. Right. Like, we just got to cut to the heart of the matter. But I don't want to make it sound as if this adjustment is all about 
paring back or taking away. Because you also gain an extraordinary new tool in your storytelling toolkit, which is sound. And that seems obvious, right? But it took me a little while to understand just how powerful that can be. You know, it absolutely transforms your ability to set a scene or get to know a character or, or literally hear the thing that you're trying to describe. Now, I have an A-B comparison that I brought to illustrate this point. Great. Okay, Isaac, here's a question. What do you know about the composer Anthony Braxton? So I will admit I admire Anthony Braxton way, way more than I actually enjoy listening to the work of Anthony Braxton. I doubt I'm alone on that front. There's just a level of chaos and inscrutability to his work that makes it extremely difficult for me to enjoy in much the same way that I, I don't know, admire John Zorn, but I don't ever listen to John Zorn. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to guess that you, on the other hand, are a big fan. I think that's a fair assessment. Although sidebar, I'm going to send you some a John Zorn playlist that will uh, at least give you some options. Is it one of the ones that says like? <laughs> I appreciate that performance, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> but the thing about Braxton and Zorn, honestly, is that they are so capacious that there's there's music in their catalog that does sound you know utterly scronky. But there's also, you know, there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of everything. And I learned this covering Braxton for years and years. You know, I, I wrote concert reviews, album reviews, columns, really, you name it. But I also have profiled him twice, both times for a general readership. And the first time, it was in the art section at the New York Times about a dozen years ago. So keeping in mind the different rules and restrictions of the medium, I thought I'd read the lead of that piece. Anthony Braxton sat perched on a piano bench one recent afternoon, hands folded in his lap, wearing an intent but unreadable expression. Angled away from the piano in a no-frills rehearsal space in Brooklyn, he faced the dozen or so vocalists that currently make up his syntactical ghost trance music choir. The singers, arranged in a semicircle, were tackling Mr. Braxton's composition number 256, staring hard at their sheet music while trying to keep track of their conductor. It was starting to seem as if the piece, a slippery, scalar proposition, were getting the best of them. Amazing. First of all, that is a beautiful, beautiful first paragraph. Oh, well, thank you very much. Looking back at these sentences, though, I can see myself really reaching to to set a scene that is legible and engaging to a reader, right? And partly that's because I think it felt a little off-putting to plunge into a description of the music right away. So instead, I'm introducing you to this person, to Anthony Braxton himself, right up front, and then trying to slip in some clues as to the difficulty and extremity of his music. Yeah, leads are among the hardest parts, right? You know, I, I think of the the way the New Yorker often solves this problem, you know, at 2.15 on a Tuesday in October, <laughs> Nate Chenin sat eating a scone and thinking about this week's working overtime. But I do think the version that you're showing us here is great. I mean, you can hear out loud, you know, as you read it, there are a lot of clauses. It's very imagistic. And then you snuck in this thematic info about the difficulty that you know is going to sort of be an issue as it's going along. But it does set the scene in this really vivid way. Well, thank you again. And I think you're nailing something, which is that this is something that was intended for, and it was very much 
presented as words on a page, right? right? And, you know, as you're listening to this now, you you didn't experience it that way, but that's how it was conceived. So by contrast, a couple of years ago, Anthony Braxton released this huge trove of new music on two box sets, two very different sets of music. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I persuaded NPR to let me run a profile. And this was for Morning Edition, which is really for the most general of general interest audiences. It's not inherently a listenership that has turned to the art section, right? This is like a segment that comes in between some hard news and some market reports or what have you. So I knew the challenge straight away was how do you accurately portray this, you know, completely out-of-the-box musical thinker with all of his idiosyncrasies in a way that actually draws people in. And I found the answer in the medium. So here is the top of that piece, just as it aired on NPR. Anthony Braxton has always done things his own way. He's famous for creating his own musical syntax and strategies. His work straddles jazz and classical traditions, but conforms to no established pattern. He is a true American original, and by his own account, a perpetual work in progress. As a young guy, I used to think, wow, if I could just get my work done and live to 30, then I'll be the happiest guy in the world because I've been able to live that long. And suddenly when I got to 30, it was like, what? I'm just getting started. And that would happen for 40, 50, 60, and now 70. So it's really far out. Speaking from his home in Connecticut, Braxton is a whirlwind of digression. What he's most eager to talk about now is Zim music, his latest structural model in a lifelong pursuit to locate clarity within chaos. Okay, great. So you definitely get a sense of his work and who he is in a very short period of time. That clip was under a minute long, right? So so tell me how you did that. Okay. I want to draw attention to three things. First of all, the scoring. Before I even start talking, you can hear an underlay of some Braxton music, and it's as wild and dense, and I guess the word you used, Isaac, was chaotic. You know, it's it's right there. It's a very, very small sliver, so not enough to, like have you veer off the road as you're listening, but it's, it's there. So then the second thing is the language that I'm using, which, you know, honestly, it would feel a little rudimentary on the page. This is actually a thing that I found very refreshing about writing for radio. All that torturous effort that you put into trying to craft the perfect lead. You don't have to worry about that quite as much. It's, it's really like, let's get into it. But the third and most crucial thing that I want to point out here is the choice of quote. Because what Anthony Braxton says here, it's not really something that I would have thought to put in a print story. The substance of the quote itself, it's it's not that illuminating, but it's so fantastically full of his personality that I knew instantly that it was going to go into the piece. You know, there's that moment where he's just sort of talking about getting older and he says that, you know, what? Right? It's that perfect record scratch, just like what an audio producer dreams of. And then when he follows it with that line about how it's really far out, you just get a sense of this bubbly, avuncular presence, which actually runs counter to so many of the characterizations, you know, about his 
difficult, cerebral, complex music. So as a listener to this piece, you instinctively want to sort of get to know this guy, like the nutty professor, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes total sense. You want to spend a few more minutes with him. And so in that sense, like I've kind of got my hooks into you. Right. I definitely think that's true. So here's the main point that I want to make. When I embraced audio storytelling as a medium and figured out solutions to problems like this, I I think it actually improved my work all around. I can't quantify this, but I I think that I'm a stronger writer Mm. because of having played around in this different sandbox. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and in a moment, we'll take a look at someone who is far more accomplished than I, who also changed up their medium. Hey, listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Get in touch and share your advice. You can email us at workingatslate.com or even better, call and leave us a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. Okay, now back to working overtime. We're back and... I want to begin with another question for you, Isaac. What comes to mind when I drop the name David Hockney? Okay, three things. The first is, of course, a swimming pool. The second are those kind of collage photographs of the people's faces from lots of different zooms and angles he did. And the third is that actually a friend of mine is the guy who supplies him stretched canvases. Oh my God. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. He has a stretch. That's his company. He owns a company that supplies canvases in LA to artists. And so he's like the guy who stretches David Hockney's canvases. All right. All right. Where's the talk of the town about him? I know, right? It's a perfect subject. Well, so David Hockney is now 86 and we can safely call him one of the most acclaimed and influential artists alive, certainly in the UK. You mentioned swimming pools. There's an acrylic he did in 1972 titled Portrait of an Artist, parentheses, pool with two figures. Yep. Do not If it does not instantly pop into your mind as I say that, you should check it out. And also, it has a, an interesting footnote. Several years ago, it sold for more than $90 million, which at the time was the highest price ever paid at auction for a work by a living artist. Incredible. So, okay, why are we talking about him? Where is the refraction in Hockney's story? I'd like to mention... This huge outpouring of work that he's done over the last dozen years or so using the Brushes app on his iPad. The Brushes app on his iPad? Yes. Sometimes an iPhone as well, but mainly these are iPad drawings that he does using that app. That's crazy. So this work is voluminous and and it's quite varied. He's done landscapes, still lifes, portraiture, even the design for a stained glass window that was installed in Westminster Abbey for Her Majesty before her passing. Mm. And, you know, what's striking about these drawings, at least the ones that I've seen online, is they have this balance of painterly depth with the, you know, completely recognizable digital timbre, if you will. And I'm using a musical term to describe a visual impression, but, you know, that's how my mind works. Now, a few years ago, Hockney wrote about his journey along this new path, and his remarks were reprinted by the Royal Academy magazine. Talking about the Brushes app, this is what he says. It was quite simple, as all the brushes were labeled with a mark just a mark, no names. So you didn't have an oil painting brush or a watercolor brush, just the mark it made on the canvas. This is all it can be. So I thought it the most honest one. 
And later in the piece, he adds, it is a new medium with pluses and minuses like any medium. Okay, so I'm just going to cut in here with a skeptical contrary take because I'm surprised to see him use the word canvas when there's no canvas involved. A digital reproduction of the texture of paint left by a human hand, manipulating the paintbrush and the real marks that paintbrush makes, those are not the same thing. I think he's wrong about this. And I think what he's produced is painting-like simulacra that lack what makes painting special. They only work because we are so used to seeing images online instead of actually going to physical spaces to look at them that we sometimes forget the differences between the two. What he's done is essentially reproduce the photograph of a painting that never existed in the first place. This is refraction gone awry. He's making a second rate (laughs) version of painting, not learning a new thing. Nate, prove me wrong. You know, this is one of those beauty in the eye of the beholder things. I would be inclined to agree with your estimation if I hadn't been captivated by some of these images. There is this kind of like weird, uncanny valley quality to them, but there's also really a a voluptuous beauty in at least some of them. So what you're saying is this is the polar expressive art, because I agree. I agree. (laughs) I mean, it's unmistakably this this kind of digital product, right? Yeah. But there's also like the master's hand involved. It is this weird in-between thing. But in a few of the examples that I've perused, I don't know that you could see that and say, oh, this is the same person who exhibited such mastery with paint on canvas. Right. But there is clearly like a really, really deep understanding of the pictorial surface and all of the the hallmarks of, you know, of a great artist, depth and color and perception. And, and he's also really, I think reckoning with the flat surface and you know the the flatness of the image is actually like a part of this medium that he that he really embraces Mm. you know i'm not going to claim that like you can't make art digitally right it's just like music with a drum machine can still be good do you know what i mean right it's just that it's a different tool i think the thing that i object to is the idea of his framing it as kind of like normal painting but in a different media there's something about that specific app and its reproduction or really faking of what painters and painting actually is that is the part i think that offends me rather than someone creating work on an ipad i mean david hockney's a master he can create work on whatever he wants it's the the fake painting aspect of it that i think gets to me you know I think that's fair and and that's where this is a, a substantially different move than say what Henri Matisse did towards the later part of his career where he's like, okay, I'm done with painting. I'm making paper cutouts now. And this is an entirely different proposition. Hockney's like, I'm a painter. I'm painting. I'm just doing it now on my iPad, (laughs) which totally there's something brazen and almost even trollish about the, the way that he talks about it, which I think is part of what's getting under your skin. So to be clear, Hockney, it's not as if he's never worked in other mediums, right? right? He's he's done throughout his career. He's he's been a photographer, he's done drafting, he's done stage design. When I think about what these iPad drawings represent for him, to me, it feels really exploratory. You know, it, like setting aside your critique, which I think is valid, I think that he brings his accumulated experience to the table or to the tablet. Mm-hmm. We should say, but he's also prepared to toss whatever's not working in that medium, right? And to lean into whatever this new process unlocks for him. And you know, again, I, I don't think that this is going to be held up 
as comparable to his, right. his greatest paintings. It is a new chapter in a career that has spanned more than 60 years. And again, I don't know whether it was necessity or something else, just sheer curiosity. He is sort of doing something that is deeply familiar to him, but in a slightly unfamiliar setting. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Yeah, totally. There is one more area of refraction that I'd like to explore today before we go. But first, let's hear a word. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. Hope you're doing well. Just wanted to say, if you're enjoying what you hear and you haven't subscribed already, uh, maybe you should click subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. If you do already subscribe and you're wondering, hey, what can I do to bring more listeners to working this podcast that I love? You can rate us. You can review us. If you're listening on Overcast, you can click the little star. Little things like that, they actually make a big difference and help us find listeners. So thank you very much in advance. And thank you for listening to the show. And now we'll get right back to it. Isaac, you are, among other things, the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And I wonder if you have a handy example of this kind of refractive shift for an actor. Yeah, sure. Definitely. I mean, look, part of being an actor is getting used to working in a variety of different forms. That's one of the mm-hmm. things you've got to get used to. You might have a predilection for really naturalistic drama, right? But you want to learn how to do heightened comedy. You want to learn how to do Shakespeare. You want to learn how to do whatever. One of the ways you do that is by going to school, you know, and doing a lot of scene study and working in a lot of shows and getting training. Another way that some actors do it is just through working. You know, they work hard all the time, right? And they learn Mm -hmm. through doing. But one specific example that comes to mind of the kind of thing you're talking about is Nathan Lane. Now, I should say Nathan very kindly blurbed my book. I know him a bit, but this was a transition that he told me about when I wrote a profile of him for New York Magazine, which is that, you know, he was known as like the great comedy and especially musical comedy leading man of of his generation. And he was in the Adams family. And in the review of the Adams family, Charles Isherwood, I think who reviewed it in the New York Times, gave him this compliment that he's one of the consummate entertainers of our time. And as he put it, you know, I can find the dark cloud around any silver lining. And so he <laughs> said, well, am I just an entertainer? Is that what people think of me? You know, and he mm-hmm. really decided to completely retool his career as a result. So what he did is he secured the role of Hickey in the Iceman Cometh, which for people who don't know is not a comic role. It's in a play (laughs) that is like five hours long. It's by Eugene O'Neill. It's incredibly difficult text. It's a really, really hard part. He worked with a private acting coach. You know, his co-star in that production was Brian Dennehy, who had played Hickey before and was actually Mm -hmm. one of the most famous O'Neill interpreters alive. You know, he really took this, this huge risk in trying to retool who he was. And then having kind of done that and learned those lessons, he then played Roy Cohn in Angels in America in London and on Broadway. And he's done comic stuff since then. It's not like he doesn't do comic work anymore. You know, if, if you've watched Only Murders in the Building, you've seen him do comic work there, right? But it was important to him to grow and really uh, transform the kind of acting that he can do and to learn how to do it. One thing that I have noticed that I think speaks to this is that 
no matter what form you're working in or what, what art or whatever, like if you're learning something new while you're creating, whatever it is, that excitement and that charge, that sense of risk, that sense of challenge, it is actually palpable in the text itself. You mm. know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. one of the things that people respond to in the method, people who like the book was not everyone, you know, not everyone likes it, but the people who like it, one of the things they respond to is that some of the stuff I'm learning alongside you. You know, mm -hmm. and so my excitement at a performance may be that you're actually reading what I wrote down as I watched it for the first time or, you know, whatever it is. And yeah. that that kind of feeling is, I think, really important. Yeah. Wow. There's so much there. I love that example because of the way that it shows how our insecurities can actually be productive <laughs> at times. Yes, totally. You know, careful. It's a it's a third rail. <laughs> you want to handle that substance carefully. But for someone as as intelligent and in control of his craft as Nathan Lane, what a great way to flip that. Yes, absolutely. Well, that is about all the time we have for this episode. But before we go, a reminder, please subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304 933 W-O-R-K. If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Dakota Ring and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. Big thanks, as always, to Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews, who both keep the beam focused no matter where it's pointed. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode. Until then... Get back to work.